Amen. Please be seated. Our journey through the book of Colossians continues to reveal the wonder of the believer's new identity in Jesus Christ. We've considered that already this morning. And that wonder is seen as this book unfolds against the backdrop of our original state of alienation from God. By virtue of our identity in Adam, we are born in Adam, we are there hostile from birth to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We resist His moral will by nature. But then God enables His chosen ones to place our faith in Jesus' death, to pay the penalty of our sin, and in His resurrection from the dead to set us apart as His very own, as what Paul calls here His holy ones. The result as we come to embrace that gospel message The result is that Christ indwells our souls. He is in us. Our identity is located now in Him in a new way. The Bible speaks of the new man, speaking corporately and individually of the new identity that we have in Christ, transferred from the realm of that circle of being in Adam to now the circle of being in Christ. And in that circle, everything changes. Paul has been burdened, in fact, as he writes to the Colossians, to live out who they are in Christ and not to be directed away from their identity in Him. Chapter 2, if you remember it, verse 6, we came to a major transition point there and a very significant statement from Paul to the Colossians where he says in 2.6, As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, knowing who Christ is as the Creator and the sustainer of the universe, knowing who He is as the resurrected head of the church. You have received Him this way. Now live in Him. Walk in Him. Find your identity. Live every day in Christ. Rooted, verse 7, built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. In verse 9 of chapter 2, He says that in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. You are filled in Him. You find again your identity in Him. And so chapter 2 and verse 19, the false teachers who were seeking to steer them away from their identity in Christ were not holding fast to the head. They were not grounding their lives in Christ and they were leading you away from being grounded in Christ. So resist this, he says. Chapter 3, if you have been raised with Christ, you have identified with Him in this way, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Again, the idea is not to walk around with your head in the clouds, but to realize who you are in Christ and to live that out each day of your life, to know that your identity is rooted there, not in this earth. And so it only follows then, chapter 3, verse 5, to put to death what is fleshly in you. To put away sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness and the like. Not because you will simply try harder, 
But because you recognize who you are in Christ, these things no longer are fitting to those who live rooted in Christ. And we are then, verse 12 and following, to put on other virtues. This is what it looks like to live in Christ, to see your identity in Him. It is to be filled with compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and the like. And so last week in verses 12 through 17, we looked at the virtues that we are to actively pursue and display in our relationship with one another as members of Christ's body. We're to love one another. That is, we are to pour out our lives in humble and gracious self-sacrifice for one another's good. We are to build one another up in the faith, in part through the songs that we sing. These words that communicate truth to each other. We're to do everything for the glory of Christ's name. And now, as Paul comes to verse 18 of chapter 3, as we find his uh, direction there, he says, hear me, listen to me. Your new identity in Christ is also to be displayed outside the local church. In the relationships that you find in your everyday life, you are a Christian. Not a Christian is one who simply carries out certain deeds and acts a certain way according to a list of rules, but a Christian whose very being is identified with Christ. It is rooted and grounded in Him. He fills you, and that will thus affect the way that you relate to others in this broader world. So the fact that I've been united to Christ by faith is to transform everyday living. And we must ask here, it becomes very vital in the text that is before us, who were these Colossian believers who were hearing this word from the Apostle Paul read to them? What did their daily lives look like? They lived largely in households. A household being not as we would understand it today, parents, children of one, uh, just the two generations, but with multiple generations and extended families living together, often within the same home, the same building. The members of the household would also include slaves among them. And some of those slaves would live right there in the household. Others might live nearby and report for work each day, even though they were slaves. A different world than ours. It was also a world of what one is referred to as patrocentrism. The male patriarch functioned as the central point from which radiated all of the other relationships. So as we work our way through this text, we will find reference to husbands, fathers, masters. These were individuals who were managers. They were giving direction to a larger household. They had to give direction to slaves and to a large family, sometimes of multiple generations. And all of the culture rested upon them. This is a congregation in the midst of a Hellenistic culture. Greek learning meshed together with Roman law and order. And that culture was hyper-authoritarian. Patri potestas in the Latin, paternal power, was how it all functioned. So again, husbands and fathers and masters had all the power. They had all of the rule in this day. And that's important for us to consider. 
what we are going to hear sounds somewhat strange to our ears in this culture, which is very different. But let me say that it sounded just as strange, I think, in their culture from a very different angle. With this patricentrism, as they understood it, fathers, husbands, masters ruled with virtually absolute power. And it was an evidence of their fittedness to rule that they kept everything under control and that no one crossed them in any way. That's the world in which we're finding this instruction. Now, I would view then, as we talk church and culture here for a moment longer, the Greco-Roman culture was like a large trellis. Uh, some of it was very rotted. It was, it was corrupt to the core. But a trellis, for those that can't quite picture that, the trellis is made a structure on which a vine is to grow. And so it is, in a sense, they are part of this Roman culture, this trellis, and the, the beauty of the vine of the Christian church was to go out and grow up on that trellis. It wasn't to stay potted in the church, but it was to show itself out in that culture upon that trellis and to provide beauty to it. In fact, if the trellis rotted too far, the vine could bring the trellis down. This is a bit of a, an illustration perhaps to help us, a bit of what is happening here in this context. He is talking to the church as the beauty of the vine out on the cultural structures that they faced every day. And we'll notice how he talks about the trellis, how he talks about Roman, Greco-Roman culture, the Hellenistic culture, and how he talks about the believer living out life in that context. Now as we look at verses 18 down through chapter 4, verse 1, one of the all-time worst chapter divisions on the planet. I don't know what the guy was thinking exactly there, but he's tracking along on one of the easiest outlines in the Bible and blows it by putting verse 1 into chapter 4. Now it wasn't the Apostle Paul didn't do that. This is just somebody later that came along and gave us these divisions. But you'll notice there three couplets of relationships. Very easy to see. Verses 18 and 19, wives and husbands, 20 and 21, children and fathers, and 22, bond servants. I have a, I'm sensing perhaps an older uh, version of the ESV here. We heard servants today, maybe that's the update, but uh, verse 22, I'll, I'll refer to it as bond servants because I'll probably just forget, but uh, servants is the same idea, slaves I think is how it's often translated. And then verse, chapter 4, verse 1, masters. So these three relationships, the two parties involved, one in a position of authority, one in a position of, of submission to that authority. He begins then with wives and husbands in verse 18. And this is uh, material familiar to us, but let's look at it from Paul's standpoint as he speaks to the Colossian believers and then as that applies to us in our congregation today. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
Submit to your husbands. The grammatical form and definition of the Greek word reveals more than this English word submit is really able to carry over to us. But a wife, it is saying, is to make the moral decision to place herself under the leadership of her husband. God created her husband as head of the home. 1 Corinthians 11.3, indeed as her head. And she is to willingly conform her role in the family to God's design. Positioning herself in a supportive, completing role that honors her husband's God-given leadership role will serve as her joy and will serve as her family's well-being. Indeed, it says here in verse 18 that this is fitting in the Lord. It's not if it seems agreeable or if you find it appropriate to the way you want to see the family go, but rather submission is in harmony with your new identity in Christ. That's the idea contextually. It is fitting in the Lord, grounded in Him, rooted in Him. This is fitting. He's not saying this is fitting because of the culture in which you live, but this is fitting in the Lord as one who is in Christ. If honoring her husband's desires forces her to disobey God, she should do everything she can to respect her husband, to be faithful to him, to be gracious with him, but to obey the Lord. Such occasions, however, are often far more imagined than they are real. If godly, discerning people can look from the outside and confirm her husband is asking her to break God's law, then there is a hierarchy of responsibility to honor the Lord, where that indeed is taking place. But such difficult scenarios is not where the battle is typically fought, is it? The battle is typically fought primarily at the line of self-will, at the place of saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to submit to what God's Word is saying. To submit to the leadership of my husband doesn't feel right. It's not what I like to do. That's where the battle is typically fought. And I think a word from God here, from His Word, is important to our wives. It is God's gracious design for you to submit to your husband's headship and to see him as the irreversible reference point for your life. And yes, I recognize how horribly out of touch that statement sounds to our culturally trained ears. It just makes us nervous. How can this be? How is this right? But our task here in this church is to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It is to declare God's good and trustworthy word to His people. And that is my task here. But I do so with great confidence knowing that God has never directed His people to do anything that is harmful to them. It may cost their life, but it's not harmful to them. It is only good. It is only His grace to us that says this word. Wives, submit to your husbands and, and elsewhere, as He says, as to the Lord. God's good design is for a husband to lead his home and for the wife to order her life so that he leads as freely, as ably, and as honorably as he possibly can. 
This is the kind of relationship that is fitting to a woman who is liberated from sin and alive in Christ. This won't be easy. There will be times when it will be difficult to apply, but this is God's Word. It is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, he says, love your wives. The emphasis falls not on the power and the position of husbands in that day. That was typical in the pagan house codes that were written that looked very much like this. They just say different things. But they deal with the very same relationships in Hellenistic writing. We can find these documents, but they don't say this. Husbands, exercise your power, exercise your authority, make sure that no one in that larger household pushes you around. This is the way that you stand as a good Roman pagan. Paul says to the congregation, husbands, love your wives. You know, there is nothing that scholars have found in the ancient documents that parallels this. It's just not there. Love your wives. The emphasis falling not on their power and position, but on their responsibility. This command flows from a new, uh, the man's new identity in Christ as well. As Jesus loved us by laying down His life in willing self-sacrifice, so husbands are to give away their lives to their wives. This is not, husbands love your wives, a reference to romantic love, let me say which is good and proper uh, in marriage. It's a good thing. It's just not what the focus of this particular word is here. Paul speaks here of sacrificial care, of untiring devotion to her ultimate good and spiritual prosperity in gentle, patient, yet decisive leadership. This command snaps the neck of any notion that a wife's submission to her husband is, is a cover for the systematic oppression of women. A way that Paul is working to get men their way, whatever they want. No, you are to love your wives. You're to give your life away to her good. This, this was hard. This didn't make sense culturally to the Colossians. And they really were going to have to work to understand the significance of this. They were going to have to understand that when a man sets out to love his wife in this way, in a biblical way, he's putting a cross on his shoulder. And he's going to the hill of death to self. To live for someone else. Always with his perspective there on what is best and good and right for her. Wives, you cannot excuse your failure to submit to your husbands because they fail to love you as they should. They will. Over and over again. But husbands, accusing your wife of failing to submit to you, complaining that if she do her part, you would be a better leader, is itself woefully unloving. Such a complaint is a direct disobedience to God. It's not loving. And it's ultimately futile. Of course she doesn't submit to you, just as you don't submit to Christ all the time. 
But I would advise husbands, all of us who live as those who do not love our wives as we should and relate to a woman who does not submit to our leadership as she should at all times, I would suggest that we all would resign from our position as her submission judge. Just resign. Don't be her submission judge. That's God's duty. Leave her submission issues with her conscience and in the hands of the Lord. Sign on to living your life for her benefit and praying fervently for her spiritual growth. That's your task. This does not mean necessarily doing whatever she wants you to do. That's not the type of love that is in view here. It does, not mean, it does mean doing whatever she needs you to do as she prepares herself to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's a grand strategy here of working out every day as her loving leader to do what is best for her as she stands before the Lord, ultimately. Loving her is not merely making much of her or yielding to her every wish. It is investing your life in her ultimate good. It is loving her as Christ loved you. Positively, love your wives. Negatively, verse 19, do not be harsh with them. Now you could say so much more, this is just abbreviated, but don't be bitter against them is the idea. Resentful, angry, harsh, irritable, surly. Don't treat her roughly with your spirit. It speaks of bitter, cutting words and harsh attitudes that are ever lurking temptations for husbands and are loaded with potential to harm our wives. Love your wife. Don't be bitter against her. Don't be harsh with her. Love her as Christ loved His church. What does it look like? Chapter 3, verse 12, here it is. Here's the other side of it. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bear with her. Forgive her. Put on love. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly as you build her up in the faith and ever give thanks for her. She's not perfect. She's done things to harm you. She makes your life miserable perhaps at some times. Give thanks for her. It's a lot of husbands that give thanks for wives. God's beautiful and gracious design and gift of marriage to us as His people is something in which we all revel on some level if we're true believers. But do we give thanks for our wives? For that woman? Work, think, rehearse. How has God blessed you with her? He has. You say He hasn't? That thought that just ran through your head is a rebellion against Christ. It's not who you are in Him. Give thanks for her. That's what it looks like. She is a precious vessel. She is a fellow heir of God's kingdom. Treat her as nothing less. Remembering that Jesus died for her. 
and remembering that Jesus watches how you live for her. Children and fathers, he moves on. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Children, obey your parents in everything. It's difficult to describe the nature, the wonder, in fact, of this direct address to children in the assembly. That would never be anticipated in this culture at that time. To talk to children this way, to give them a responsibility in Christ, strange. But the Apostle Paul, in a sense, looks right at children and says, you too have a responsibility to express your new identity in Jesus. Obeying your parents, submitting to their will for you is fitting in the Lord. It pleases the Lord. God does not demand that you agree with everything they ask of you. God calls you to obey your parents because it pleases Him. Now one of the hardest things most of you children are ever going to do in the next few years is to obey your parents. To submit your will to their will. It's going to be one of the hardest things you do. It just isn't easy. And I want to talk to you about, just for a moment, why it's so hard. This is a newsflash for a few of you, but it's not because your parents are the dumbest people on earth, that you just got set with those really dumb people. It's not that they're the most unreasonable man and woman of any of your friends. It's not that they are the most out-of-touch parents in the world. This is why it's so hard. In part, no one in your life is more responsible to teach you and to train you. And that's not easy work. No one is more responsible to fight your innate laziness. And no one is more responsible to rattle the idols of your heart. That's why it's so hard. It's so hard because behind the cover of your home, your fleshly desires bear their teeth like nowhere else. And yes, the same is true with them. And so it's hard. But let's remember this key phrase, children, for this pleases the Lord. For this is well-pleasing in the Lord is how I wish it would be translated because I think that's really the essence of the Greek text here. This is well-pleasing in the Lord. This is well-pleasing as the new humanity. This is well-pleasing rooted in Jesus Christ. This is who you are, who you were remade to be, those who would obey your parents. And so when you disobey mom or dad, you're focused on what pleases the Lord. Of course not. You're focused on what pleases you. You're acting in conformity to your old identity in Adam, but when you obey them, it is an opportunity to please the Lord as a new creation in Christ. Think of the opportunity that is there. And the Apostle Paul himself talking to you and saying, this is your calling. Obey your parents. Now parents, a word here while we're still talking about children and obedience. The command for children to obey their parents assumes that parents will exercise the responsibility of giving authoritative direction. 
It assumes accountability. It assumes correction. It assumes conflict. Obedience is impossible without direction, without commands, in fact. And obedience cannot be a moral obligation apart from the exercise of authority. Otherwise, it is simply good advice. Our culture, the culture in which we live, I, that, their culture, they weren't having any trouble with that. Children, obey your parents, of course. What they were stunned by was in the Lord. That this was a responsibility of children to respond to God in order to please Him. They weren't having any trouble with the idea of submitting to the authority of parents. That's our problem in this culture. Our culture systematically indoctrinates parents to issue suggestions. And only when utterly necessary. Parents are in the role of submitting to their children's initiative and submitting to their children's pleasures. The danger in all of this is that it is seen as compassionate, loving, gracious parenting. That's how it's understood. Don't ever really direct. I don't ever really command. I don't ever really lean on them to do what the flesh doesn't want to do. And we write it off as compassionate, gracious kindness as a Christian mom and dad. In reality, let's dig a little deeper under the surface. In reality, we are influenced by a psychologized worldview that is based on an underlying philosophy that children are pre-programmed to find their destiny and that our job as parents is to facilitate self-discovery, self-expression, and self-satisfaction. We're trained to do that. Under the withering assault of such a humanistic worldview, our children are losing a viable understanding of two things. One is authority. They don't even know what it is anymore. And the other is sin. The conscience-pricking decision to break God's law. And then we're stunned by how our jails are filling up. Along with this psychologized worldview, get out of your children's way so they can discover themselves, is really at the heart of parents, child idolatry, self-love, and a fundamental underestimation of the power of the flesh. We just don't want to touch it. Let me say to children, when we think of obedience... Parents, we got our work to do, but children, when you think of obeying your parents, I, I want to just give this one word as we move on, but that is that you need Christ. You need Jesus. You're not going to do this without Him. He alone can empower what is not natural in you. And so when you say, my parents are so dumb, they don't get it, they ask me these crazy things, what you're doing is you're depending on yourself to obey them. You're looking at the fact that they're unreasonable. They don't make sense. You don't understand why this should happen. And what you're doing then is relying on your own heart, your own self, your own strength to obey them. There has to be a decision and an understanding. You must rely on Christ. Only He can help you do this difficult thing. 
And to the parents addressed as fathers here, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Father is a generic word for parents, used that way in other places in the New Testament, but perhaps singled out uniquely here because in verse 20, from verse 20, we would expect another reference here to parents. But Paul actually moves in a direction we don't expect, and so there's probably some significance to the fact that he uses fathers. A Christian father who says the children are my wife's responsibility is a moral fool failing to live out his identity in Christ. That's not what true believers do. Push that off onto someone else. Here, God counsels fathers against overwhelming their children with the power of their authority, which would have been common in that day. There are times fathers must be firm. Times they need to stand up to a child and say, you're going to stop. You need to start. You can't do. You must do this. They have to. But fathers are not to discourage and crush the spirit of their children. Now the qualifiers are important as well. A child can selfishly dismiss all encouragement and in self-pity take every word of parental correction as a sign of bitter disapproval. And children can charge parents with embittering them when it's not really what's happening. But the judge is not the children. The judge is other parents. When a father is embittering his children by oppression, everybody knows it. It's not the child necessarily who can determine that, but it's fairly clear to see. And this is what happens when children grow up within a home with a crushed spirit, and as they leave, they wash their hands of the family and never come back or at least don't ever have anything like a real conversation with dad again. Don't do that. Don't go that way. That's not who you are in Christ, he says. Don't provoke your children. Now, he doesn't speak very much here about fathers and their responsibilities, so we're going to move on. But we take this to heart. Don't provoke them, lest they become discouraged. That should be something we consider very carefully. The third and final relationship, bondservants and masters. Bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, or it could be serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. It's really interesting to remember that this book, from everything we can tell, this book traveled back from Paul to Colossae with Onesimus. Remember him? Onesimus was the slave that Paul led to Christ And he's coming back to this place to his master, Philemon. And Paul has something to say to Philemon, doesn't he, in the New Testament documents. But we're dealing with a context, a culture of slavery. Slavery was a vital beam in the Greco-Roman society. It was a vital beam in that trellis. It was seen as indispensable to civilized society. It was not racially based as is the case in in our nation's horrific history. It had nothing to do with that. 
It had to do with status in life. You might have been a captured slave from a, another, from a conquered people. You may have been somebody who simply ran out of money in difficulties. Many people chose slavery as a way of not having to deal with the issues that they were having to deal with or maybe not being able to do anything else, and so they submitted to slavery. It was, it was a very uh, involved and unique thing with many different scenarios. It was not racially based as we think of it. But most of the people, most of the people you saw on a Roman street were slaves. Most of the people you saw walking around, that was their status in life. And they did many of the jobs that we do. Slaves were sometimes doctors and teachers and artisans and farmers and business operators. They were all slaves. And as I mentioned earlier, some of them lived in a house on their own with their own families and even extended families. And they showed up for work every day. So, they, so there, there was a, is a very different environment than what we might consider. In fact, dignified, accomplished Roman citizens saw work as below them. Their societal role was to manage slaves who had no civil rights. They were the masters to rule with power. But their hope was to go to the games and to go to the baths and to uh, be involved in the spa during the day and things like this. That was that, to read, uh, to learn, to be lectured. That was the master's duty. Slaves did all the work. And so a question arises here. Paul speaks to slaves. Is he commending slavery? Do we have this outdated book that commends slavery? I don't think so at all. I think we're thinking trellis and vine here. Paul realizes on some level, probably not fully himself, as enculturated as he was, but I think he realizes the trellis is rotten. Everything that he writes undermines slavery. But the Christian life is to grow as the vine on that trellis. Our job is not to remove the trellis. We might topple it with the strength and the weight of our growth. But that's not what he's concerned with here. And so he speaks to the slaves in the assembly and says, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your, master, your earthly masters. They're addressed also as the new humanity with specific responsibilities in union with Christ. This undermines the whole caste idea. Your earthly masters, even how that sounds, the Greek is lords according to the flesh. You have a Lord who's not according to the flesh. He's in risen form. Paul now addresses the way then in which these Christian slaves should render their obedience Verse 22, it's not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Eye service. Just when the Master is looking, you work just to be seen in favorable light by others. Slaves who are in Christ realize that God is always watching and evaluating their work. They know that those who cheat on their work never get away with it. Ever. They have a new identity in Christ. There's no such thing as getting away with it. You can get away with it in Adam. But even there, you'll meet Christ someday. 
people pleasers. They're concerned only with what one can get by securing the recognition of other people. Don't serve like that. So we're not slaves. There's not an absolute and direct application, but there certainly is in the sense that as we carry out work each day, we are to set these things aside. Not eye service, not people pleasers. But rather to serve with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, or reverencing the assessment of the ever-present Christ. That's what should motivate us. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That doesn't mean you're to blow off what your boss is saying to reject their authority. What it means is that every job, at every meeting, at every service call, or whatever it is, there is a Lord who reigns sovereignly over all. Remember that. Serve this Lord. He's your Lord. And He died for you. He gave you life. Our new identity in Christ, when fully appreciated, radically influences our performance as workers, serving at the pleasure of others, but serving ultimately under the eye of Christ. So verse 24, knowing this, whatever you do, work heartily as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Again, how radical. Slaves didn't have inheritance rights. But you're an inheritor of heaven. You're an inheritor of the kingdom of God. Don't ever forget that. As Peter spoke of it, slaves were heirs of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved in heaven for you. So you're serving the Lord Christ. In fact, that could be taken as an imperative. Many take it that way. Uh, Serve the Lord Christ for, verse 25, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done and there is no partiality. That's the reason we must serve Christ. The reason we must honor this call is this, the final accounting. Slaves who did wrong might seem to get away with it, but they needed to remember the ever-present eye of the Lord upon them. The high Christology of the book then continues to have a direct effect upon how believers live. I live in Christ. I am headed to eternity. Christ the reigning Lord watches over everything that I do. I go to work that way. I fulfill my work each day knowing that. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The Father has set the day. He has appointed the judge, and that judge will render perfect judgment. And so the day is fixed, it is fair, and it is final. We live with that concept. Eden Baptist Church, you're living with people that don't have that concept. If you're in the workday world, they don't think about final judgment. They don't think about an accountability in the next life. They think about what they can get away with. They think about how they can serve themselves because this is it as far as they're thinking. Now, they might believe in a heaven of some sort, but they're not in any way affected by accountability in the next life. You are. Grow. Let your vine be vibrant. Live as if there's a master in heaven. Go to work that way. Don't worry over much, he says to slaves, what your masters judge. 
Regard the greater concern the day that you will stand before Christ who will render perfect judgment. And can the masters in the assembly not put that together? He doesn't even need to give it more than a short sentence. It's so obvious. What does he say? Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Masters were not to use their power unfairly. In that day, masters could take the life of their slaves and there'd be no prosecution. Now, Roman historians like Seneca said you should be nice to slaves, you should treat them halfway decently, but they were referred to as breathing tools. If you wanted to throw your hammer in the river, that was your prerogative. And if you wanted to slice the neck of a servant, of a slave, neighbors might not like it. No prosecution. They're just breathing tools. How countercultural are Paul's words? Slaves are made in the image of God. Slaves are within the family of God. Slaves, Colossian believers, listen to this, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. The vine is growing, the trellis is crumbling. And soon it will crush the rotten trellis of slavery. And this is how it happens. Masters, you have a master. You will someday stand before him. So as brothers and sisters in Christ in the Colossian assembly, they stood on absolutely even ground before the Lord. But leaving the circle of the assembly, slaves and masters had to operate in the temporary sphere of their cultural responsibilities. The vine couldn't go out and remove the trellis that afternoon. They had to work on the structures that were there. And in that, I think Paul's words are extremely wise. In that sphere, as unpopular as it might be, believing masters were responsible to treat their slaves justly and fairly. Most of the guys in the club would look at that as weakness. But your master's not the guys in the neighborhood. Your master is Christ. Treat them fairly and justly. I think there's certainly an application here to bosses today, to our setting, to those of you who manage workers. Your authority can make their life miserable or it can help them and be a blessing to them. How we treat them, we must recognize, is to be rooted in who we are in Christ as we exercise authority. And we have to make hard calls. We have to say things that people don't like to hear. We've got to make decisions that sometimes don't seem fair to them. But we need to operate fairly and justly because everybody is made in the image of God. Just like you. Just like me. I think it extends too to how we treat service providers, insurance providers, and bankers, and cashiers, and cable providers, and garbage haulers, and mail order providers, and the like. Let me go on meddling. Phone solicitors. 
That guy that knocks on your door, why? Who sent out the memo when the Millers eat? I don't know how they know you're eating. We don't cook our food out of a, out of a fireplace, but they just know it's always during mealtime, the knock on the door, we want to sell you this. In a, in a manner of speaking, those are other people's slaves. How do you treat your workers? How do you treat other people's workers? I think our identity in Christ ought to extend there. Yes, some of them are manipulative crooks and need to be rebuked. I got one of those this week. But you know that many of them are simply trying to make a living. And I'd much rather that they were doing that. How do you speak to them? How do you speak to that clerk who blew it? How do you speak to that irritating insurance person that can't figure out what your name is? How do you treat that person who knocks on your door and says, will you buy this ridiculous thing? They don't say ridiculous. You fill that word in. But what do you do? How do we treat them? You say, well, they don't know me. They don't know I'm a Christian. They'll never talk to me again. Well, these days with the internet, they probably do know you more than you really want to believe. But even if they never know you, even if they never talk to you again, Jesus knows you. He's there. He's listening in. And remember that you may well be talking to a soul he has died to save and soon will. How do we deal with other people's slaves in a manner of speaking? How do we function in this world when Christ is our Lord, when our identity is rooted in him, we treat people fairly, we treat them justly. Now, there are many in our day who look at this passage, and grant me just a few more moments, but they say, this is craziness. This is exactly why I don't believe the Bible. Talking about slaves, this is an evidence of the New Testament's capitulation to the culture. Talk about women submitting to their husbands, children obeying the authority of their parents. This just reinforces the broken ancient status quo of Christian churches who follow this outdated book. Very articulate people that have written long, long papers saying what I've just said. Well, let's remember this is the same Paul who wrote Colossians 2.11. People seem to lose context real quickly as he identifies all of these different people as one in Christ. Galatians 3.28 as well. Submission to human authority is an important element of God's creative design for societies. Rome's trellis was rotting. Slavery was good for a few people in the world at that time. 
but it was a system that violates the dignity of people created in God's image. It takes away from them a freedom that is part of what God's gift is to humanity. And the beauty of our creative design and the uniting of bond and free in Christ would, like a healthy vine, eventually topple the trellis. It would break down the institution of slavery. Now there too, there's a lot of revisionist history that doesn't want us to recognize the significance of Christian thought in the destruction of slavery within the West. But that connection is clearly there. Now many use the Bible and passages such as this to justify slavery. But in time, by the grace of God, the truth became known and the rotting trellis was crushed. But at the same time, for Paul to speak against slavery, even to refuse to participate in it on at least some level, would create a social minefield that was impossible to navigate at this time in history. At this particular time, it would become all about eliminating slavery. Paul knew that there was a greater task. Your identity in Jesus Christ lived out in the structures of the broken world in which we live. This is our challenge. So Christianity was not a radical restructuring of society as a primary goal. It is a transformational power to save souls, to transform culture by changing minds through an appeal to the conscience. What is so key to all of this and not to be missed is the emphasis on the Lordship of Christ. Notice it in verse 18 as is fitting in the Lord. In verse 20, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Verse 22, it is there as well. You have a Master in heaven. You have a Lord in heaven. You are to fear the Lord as you respond to your earthly masters. Verse 23, as for the Lord, not for men. Verse 24, there again, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance. You are serving the Lord Christ or serve the Lord. Chapter 4 and verse 1, the Greek would actually read that you have a Lord. That you have a Lord in heaven. It's the Lordship of Christ. That is what is at issue, and that changes everything. For those of you who have not put your trusting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me just say, because you need to hear it, Christ is Lord of all. He is the risen, reigning, and coming Lord. He is the final judge of the human soul. In every relationship, because He is Lord, but because you have not trusted Him that way, every human relationship in which you're involved is broken. It's all disordered. If it's ordered at all, It is ordered to please yourself. Jesus provides a rescue from you and from standing before God covered in the filth of your own idolatries. He holds out that hope to you and He will indeed change you. 
He'll transform your entire being, little by little, as you come to faith in Christ and trust Him today, I would hope. For believers, we've been rescued from a normal life. We don't live one anymore. We live one that is radically oriented to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so that brings all of us today, undoubtedly every single one of us, to this moment, to a moment of repentance. I don't add up. You don't add up. We have failed our Lord. But as we come in repentance seeking forgiveness, He grants that forgiveness and empowers us to do what He's called us to do. Let's seek Him because we need Him. Lord, as we come to You, I trust we've been praying, we've been seeking the leading of Your Spirit through all of this. I pray that You would transform our hearts and strengthen us to see where we fail You. As wives, as husbands, as children and parents, as workers, as those who have some level of authority over others. We ask that prayers of repentance would be ascending, that you'd be hearing them, and that the risen Christ and the Spirit of God would be interceding in our behalf to provide forgiveness and change. We pray again for those who know not Christ and pray that this would be a day of dawning that they would realize there is a Lord and that it's not them. Please bring them to faith in Christ and show them the joy of living in His light. Through Christ we pray. Amen.